0: Part 2 of The History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 3, by Friedrich Schiller. Translated by Rev. A. J. W. Morrison, this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. While Gustavus was thus extending his conquests along the main, fortune crowned also the efforts of his generals and allies in the north of Germany. Rostock, Wismar, and Domitz, The only strong places in the duchy of Mecklenburg which still sighed under the yoke of the imperialists were recovered by their legitimate sovereign, the Duke John Albert, under the Swedish general, Acatius Tot. In vain did the imperial general, Wolf Count von Mansfeld, endeavor to recover from the Swedes the territories of Halberstadt, which they had taken possession immediately upon the victory of Leipzig. He was even compelled to leave Magdeburg itself in their hands the Swedish general, Banner, who, with eight thousand men, remained upon the Elbe, closely blockaded that city, and had defeated several imperial regiments which had been sent to its relief. Count Mansfeld defended it in person with great resolution, but his garrison being too weak to oppose for any length of time the numerous force of the besiegers, he was already about to surrender on conditions, when Pappenheim advanced to his assistance, and gave employment elsewhere to the Swedish arms magdeburg however or rather the wretched huts that peeped out miserably from among the ruins of that once great town was afterwards voluntarily abandoned by the imperialists and immediately taken possession of by the swedes even lower saxony encouraged by the progress of the king ventured to raise its head from the disasters of the unfortunate danish war they held a congress at hamburg and resolved upon raising three regiments which they hoped would be sufficient to free them from the oppressive garrisons of the imperialists the bishop of bremen a relation of gustavus adolphus was not content even with this but assembled troops of his own and terrified the unfortunate monks and priests of the neighborhood but was quickly compelled by the imperial general count gransfeld to lay down his arms even george duke of lunenburg formerly a colonel in the emperor's service embraced the party of gustavus for whom he raised several regiments and by occupying the attention of the imperialists in lower saxony materially assisted him but more important service was rendered to the king by the Landgrave william of hesse cassel whose victorious arms struck with terror the greater part of westphalia and lower saxony the bishopric of fulda and even the electorate of cologne it has been already stated that immediately after the conclusion of the alliance between the Landgrave and Gustavus Adolphus at Werben, two imperial generals, Fugger and Altringer, were ordered by Tilly to march into Hesse, to punish the Landgrave for his revolt from the emperor. But this prince had as firmly withstood the arms of his enemies as his subjects had the proclamations of Tilly inciting them to rebellion, and the Battle of Leipzig presently relieved him of their presence. He availed himself of their absence with courage and resolution. In a short time, Wach, Münder, and Hexter surrendered to him, while his rapid advance alarmed the bishoprics of Fulda, Paderborn, and the ecclesiastical territories which bordered on Hesse. The frightened states hastened by speedy submission to set limits to his progress, and by considerable contributions to purchase exemption from plunder. After these successful enterprises, the landgrave united his victorious army with that of gustavus adolphus and concerted with him at frankfort their future plan of operations in this city a number of princes and ambassadors were assembled to congratulate gustavus on his success and either to conciliate his favour or to appease his indignation among them was the fugitive king of bohemia the palatine frederick v who had hastened from holland to throw himself into the arms of his avenger and protector gustavus gave him the unprofitable honor of greeting him as a crowned head and endeavored by a respectful sympathy to soften his sense of his misfortunes but great as the advantages were which frederick had promised himself from the power and good fortune of his protector and high as were the expectations he had built on his justice and magnanimity the chance of this unfortunate prince's reinstatement in his kingdom was as distant as ever. The inactivity and contradictory politics of the English court had abated the zeal of Gustavus Adolphus, and an irritability which he could not always repress, made him on this occasion forget the glorious vocation of protector of the oppressed, in which, on his invasion of Germany, he had so loudly announced himself. The terrors of the king's irresistible strength, and the near prospect of his vengeance, had also compelled George, Landgrave of Hesse-Darmstadt to a timely submission. His connection with the Emperor and his indifference to the Protestant cause were no secret to the King, but he was satisfied with laughing at so impotent an enemy. As the Landgrave knew his own strength and the political situation of Germany so little as to offer himself as mediator between the contending parties, Gustavus used jestingly to call him the peacemaker. He was frequently heard to say, when at play he was winning from the landgrave, that the money afforded double satisfaction, as it was imperial coin. To his affinity with the elector of Saxony, whom Gustavus had caused to treat with forbearance, the landgrave was indebted for the favourable terms he obtained from the king, who contented himself with the surrender of his fortress of Russelheim and the promise of observing a strict neutrality during the war. The Counts of Westerwald and Wetteron also visited the King in Frankfurt, to offer him their assistance against the Spaniards, and to conclude an alliance, which was afterwards of great service to him. The town of Frankfurt itself had reason to rejoice at the presence of this monarch, who took their commerce under his protection, and by the most effectual measures restored the fairs which had been greatly interrupted by the war. The Swedish army was now reinforced by 10,000 Hessians, which the Landgrave of Cass commanded. Gustavus Adolphus had already invested Königstein. Kosteim and Flursheim surrendered after a short siege. He was in command of the main, and transports were preparing with all speed at Hocht to carry his troops across the Rhine. These preparations filled the elector of Mentz, Anselm Casimir, with consternation, and he no longer doubted but that the storm of war would next fall upon him as a partisan of the emperor and one of the most active members of the league he could expect no better treatment than his confederates the bishops of Wurzburg and bamberg had already experienced the situation of his territories upon the rhine made it necessary for the enemy to secure them while the fertility afforded an irresistible temptation to a necessitous army miscalculating his own strength and that of his adversaries the elector flattered himself That he was able to repel force by force, and weary out the valor of the Swedes by the strength of his fortresses. He ordered the fortifications of his capital to be repaired with all diligence, provided it with every necessary for sustaining a long siege, and received into the town a garrison of two thousand Spaniards, under Don Philip de Silva. To prevent the approach of the Swedish transports, he endeavored to close the mouths of the main by driving piles, and sinking large heaps of stones and vessels. He himself, however, accompanied by the Bishop of Worms, and carrying with him his most precious effects, took refuge in Cologne, and abandoned his capital and territories to the rapacity of a tyrannical garrison. But these preparations, which bespoke less of true courage than of weak and overweening confidence, did not prevent the Swedes from marching upon Mentz and making serious preparations for an attack upon the city. While one body of their troops poured into the Rheingau, routed the Spaniards who remained there, and levied contributions on the inhabitants, another laid the Roman Catholic towns in Westerwald and Wetterau under similar contributions. The main army had encamped at Kassel, opposite Mintz, and Bernhard, Duke of Weimar, made himself master of the Mausenthern and the Castle of Ehrenfels, on the other side of the Rhine. Gustavus was now actively preparing to cross the river. And to blockade the town on the land side, when the movements of Tilly in Franconia suddenly called him from the siege and obtained for the elector a short repose. The danger of Nuremberg, which, during the absence of Gustavus Adolphus on the Rhine, Tilly had made a show of besieging, and in the event of resistance, threatened with the cruel fate of Magdeburg, occasioned the king suddenly to retire from before Mentz, lest he should expose himself a second time to the reproaches of Germany. And the disgrace of abandoning a confederate city to a ferocious enemy he hastened to its relief by forced marches on his arrival at frankfort however he heard of its spirited resistance and of the retreat of tilly and lost not a moment in prosecuting his designs against Metz, failing in an attempt to cross the rhine at cassel under the cannon of the besieged he directed his march toward the bergstrasse with a view of approaching the town from an opposite quarter here he quickly made himself master of all the places of importance and at stockstadt between gernsheim and oppenheim appeared a second time upon the banks of the rhine the whole of the bergstrasse was abandoned by the spaniards who endeavoured obstinately to defend the other bank of the river for this purpose they had burned or sunk all the vessels in the neighbourhood and arranged a formidable force on the banks in case the king should attempt the passage at that place On this occasion the king's impetuosity exposed him to great danger of falling into the hands of the enemy in order to reconnoiter the opposite bank he crossed the river in a small boat he had scarcely landed when he was attacked by a party of spanish horse from whose hands he only saved himself by a precipitate retreat having at last with the assistance of the neighboring fishermen succeeded in procuring a few transports he dispatched two of them across the river bearing Count Bray and 300 Swedes. Scarcely had this officer time to entrench himself on the opposite bank, when he was attacked by 14 squadrons of Spanish dragoons and cuirassiers. Superior as the enemy was in number, Count Bray, with his small force, bravely defended himself, and gained time for the king to support him with fresh troops. The Spaniards at last retired, with the loss of 600 men, some taking refuge in Oppenheim, and others in Mentz a lion of marble on a high pillar holding a naked sword in its paw and a helmet on its head was erected seventy years after the event to point out to the traveller the spot where the immortal monarch crossed the great river of germany gustavus adolphus now conveyed his artillery and the greater part of his troops over the river and laid siege to oppenheim which after a brave resistance was on the eighth december sixteen thirty one carried by storm five hundred spaniards who had so courageously defended the place fell indiscriminately a sacrifice to the fury of the swedes the crossing of the rhine by gustavus struck terror into the spaniards and lorrainers who had thought themselves protected by the river from the vengeance of the swedes rapid flight was now their only security every place incapable of an effectual defence was immediately abandoned after a long train of outrages on the defenceless citizens the troops of lorraine evacuated worms which before their departure they treated with wanton cruelty the spaniards hastened to shut themselves up in frankenthal where they hoped to defy the victorious arms of gustavus adolphus the king lost no time in prosecuting his designs against mentz into which the flower of the spanish troops had thrown themselves while he advanced on the left bank of the rhine the landgrave of hesse-cassel moved forward on the other reducing several strong places on his march. The besieged Spaniards, though hemmed in on both sides, displayed at first a bold determination, and threw for several days a shower of bombs into the Swedish camp, which cost the king many of his bravest soldiers. But notwithstanding, the Swedes continually gained ground, and had at last advanced so close to the ditch that they prepared seriously for storming the place. The courage of the besieged now began to droop they trembled before the furious impetuosity of the Swedish soldiers, of which Marienburg in Würzburg had afforded so fearful an example. The same dreadful fate awaited Mintz, if taken by storm, and the enemy might even be easily tempted to revenge the carnage of Magdeburg on this rich and magnificent residence of a Roman Catholic prince. To save the day, rather than their own lives, the Spanish garrison capitulated on the fourth day, And obtained from the magnanimity of Gustavus a safe-conduct to Luxembourg, the greater part of them, however, following the example of many others enlisted in the service of Sweden. On the 13th December, 1631, the King made his entry into the conquered town, and fixed his quarters in the palace of the Elector. Eighty pieces of cannon fell into his hands, and the citizens were obliged to redeem their property from pillage by a payment of eighty thousand florins. The benefits of this redemption did not extend to the jews and the clergy who were obliged to make large and separate contributions for themselves the library of the elector was seized by the king as his share and presented by him to his chancellor Oxenstiern, who intended it for the academy of Westera, but the vessel in which it was shipped to sweden foundered at sea after the loss of mentz misfortune still pursued the spaniards on the rhine shortly before the capture of that city the landgrave of hesse cassel had taken Falkenstein and Reifenberg, and the fortress of Königstein surrendered to the Hessians. The Rhinegrave, Otto Louis, one of the king's generals, defeated nine Spanish squadrons who were on their march for Frankenthal, and made himself master of the most important towns upon the Rhine, from Beaupart to Bacharach After the capture of the fortress of Braunfels, which was effected by the Count of Wetterau, with the cooperation of the Swedes, the Spaniards quickly lost every place in Wetterau, while in the Palatinate they retained few places besides Frankenthal. Landau and Krovisenberg openly declared for the Swedes. Spires offered troops for the King's service. Mannheim was gained through the prudence of the Duke Bernard of Weimar, and the negligence of its governor, who, for his misconduct, was tried before the Council of War at Heidelberg and beheaded. The king had protracted the campaign into the depth of winter, and the severity of the season were perhaps one cause of the advantage his soldiers gained over those of the enemy. But the exhausted troops now stood in need of the repose of winter quarters, which, after the surrender of Mentz, Gustavus assigned to them, in its neighborhood. He himself enjoyed the interval of inactivity in the field, which the season of the year enjoined, in arranging with his chancellor the affairs of his cabinet, in treating for a neutrality with some of his enemies and adjusting some political disputes which had sprung up with a neighbouring ally he chose the city of mentz for his winter quarters and the settlement of these state affairs and showed a greater partiality for this town than seemed consistent with the interests of the german princes or the shortness of his visit to the empire not content with strongly fortifying it he erected at the opposite angle from which the main forms with the rhine a new citadel which was named Gustavusburg from its founder, but which is better known under the title of Pfaffenrub or Pfaffenzang. Footnote. Priest's plunder, alluding to the means by which the expense of its erection had been defrayed. End footnote. While Gustavus Adolphus made himself master of the Rhine, and threatened the three neighbouring electorates with his victorious arms, his vigilant enemies in Paris and Saint-Germain made use of every artifice to deprive him of the support of France, and, if possible, to involve him in a war with that power. By his sudden and equivocal march to the Rhine, he had surprised his friends, and furnished his enemies with the means of exciting a distrust of his intentions. After the conquest of Würzburg, and of the greater part of Franconia, the path into Bavaria and Austria lay open to him through Bamberg and the Upper Palatinate and the expectation was, as general as it was natural, that he would not delay to attack the Emperor and the Duke of Bavaria in the very centre of their power, and, by the reduction of his two principal enemies, bring the war immediately to an end. But to the surprise of both parties, Gustavus left the path which general expectation had thus marked out for him, and instead of advancing to the right, turned to the left, to make the less important and more innocent princes of the Rhine feel his power. While he gave time to his more formidable opponents to recruit their strength. Nothing but the paramount design of reinstating the unfortunate palatine, Frederick V, in the possession of his territories by the expulsion of the Spaniards, could seem to account for this strange step, and the belief that Gustavus was about to effect that restoration, silenced for a while the suspicions of his friends and the calumnies of his enemies. But the lower palatinate, was now almost entirely cleared of the enemy, and yet Gustavus continued to form new schemes of conquest on the Rhine, and to withhold the reconquered country from the Palatine, its rightful owner. In vain did the English ambassador remind him of what justice demanded, and what his own solemn engagement made a duty of honor. Gustavus replied to these demands with bitter complaints of the inactivity of the English court, and prepared to carry his victorious standard into Alsace, and even into Lorraine. A distrust of the Spanish monarch was now loud and open, while the malice of his enemies busily circulated the most injurious reports as to his intentions. Richelieu, the minister of Louis the Thirteenth, had long witnessed with anxiety the king's progress toward the French frontier, and the suspicious temper of Louis rendered him but too accessible to the evil surmises which the occasion gave rise to france was at this time involved in a civil war with her protestant subjects and the fear was not altogether groundless that the approach of a victorious monarch of their party might revive their drooping spirit and encourage them to a more desperate resistance this might be the case even if gustavus adolphus was far from showing a disposition to encourage them or to act unfaithfully towards his ally the king of france but the vindictive bishop of wurtzburg who was anxious to avenge the loss of his dominions, the envenomed rhetoric of the Jesuits and the active zeal of the Bavarian minister represented this dreaded alliance between the Huguenots and the Swedes as an undoubted fact, and filled the timid mind of Louis with the most alarming fears. Not merely chimerical politicians, but many of the best-informed Roman Catholics fully believed that the king was on the point of breaking into the heart of France, to make common cause with the Huguenots and to overturn the Catholic religion within the kingdom. Fanatical zealots already saw him with his army crossing the Alps, and dethroning the vice-regent of Christ in Italy. Such reports no doubt soon refute themselves. Yet it cannot be denied that Gustavus, by his maneuvers on the Rhine, gave a dangerous handle to the malice of his enemies, and in some measure justified the suspicion that he directed his arms, not so much against the emperor, And the Duke of Bavaria as against the Roman Catholic religion itself. The general clamour of discontent which the Jesuits raised in all the Catholic courts against the alliance between France and the enemy of the Church at last compelled Cardinal Richelieu to take a decisive step for the security of his religion and at once to convince the Roman Catholic world of the zeal of France and of the selfish policy of the ecclesiastical states of Germany. Convinced that the views of the king in Sweden, like his own, aimed solely at the humiliation of the power of Austria, he hesitated not to promise to the princes of the League, on the part of Sweden, a complete neutrality, immediately they abandoned their alliance with the emperor and withdrew their troops. Whatever the resolution these princes should adopt, Richelieu would equally attain his object. By their separation from the Austrian intent, Ferdinand would be exposed to the combined attack of France and Sweden and Gustavus Adolphus, freed from his other enemies in Germany, would be able to direct his undivided force against the hereditary dominions of Austria. In that event, the fall of Austria was inevitable, and this great object of Richelieu's policy would be gained without injury to the Church. If, on the other hand, the princes of the League persisted in their opposition, and adhered to the Austrian alliance, the result would indeed be more doubtful, but still France would have sufficiently proved to all Europe The sincerity of her attachment to the Catholic cause, and performed her duty as a member of the Roman Church. The princes of the League would then appear the sole authors of those evils, which the continuance of the war would unavoidably bring upon the Roman Catholics of Germany. They alone, by their willful and obstinate adherence to the Emperor, would frustrate the measures employed for their own protection, involve the Church in danger and themselves in ruin. Richelieu pursued this plan with greater zeal. The more he was embarrassed by the repeated demands of the Elector of Bavaria for assistance from France. For this prince, as already stated, when he first began to entertain suspicions of the emperor, entered immediately into a secret alliance with France, by which, in the event of any change in the emperor's sentiments, he hoped to secure the possession of the palatinate. But though the origin of the treaty clearly showed against what enemy it was directed, maximilian now thought proper to make use of it against the king of sweden and did not hesitate to demand from france that assistance against her ally which she had simply promised against austria richelieu embarrassed by this conflicting alliance with two hostile powers had no resource left but to endeavour to put a speedy termination to their hostilities and as little inclined to sacrifice bavaria as he was disabled by his treaty with sweden from assisting it he set himself with all diligence to bring about a neutrality as the only means fulfilling his obligations to both for this purpose the marquis of brez was sent as his plenipotentiary to the king of sweden at mentz to learn his sentiments on this point and to procure from him favorable conditions for the allied princes but if louis the thirteenth had powerful motives for wishing for this neutrality gustavus adolphus had as grave reasons for desiring the contrary. Convinced by numerous proofs that the hatred of the princes of the League to the Protestant religion was invincible, their aversion to the foreign power of the Swedes inextinguishable, and their attachment to the House of Austria irrevocable, he apprehended less danger from their open hostility than from a neutrality which was so little in unison with their real inclinations. And moreover, as he was constrained to carry on the war in Germany at the expense of the enemy, he manifestly sustained great loss if he diminished their number without increasing that of his friends. It was not surprising, therefore, if Gustavus evinced little inclination to purchase the neutrality of the League by which he was likely to gain so little at the expense of the advantages he had already obtained. The conditions, accordingly, upon which he offered to adopt the neutrality towards Bavaria were severe and suited to these views. He required of the whole league a full and entire cessation from all hostilities, the recall of their troops from the imperial army, from the conquered towns, and from all the Protestant countries, the reduction of their military force, the exclusion of the imperial armies from their territories, and from supplies either of men, provisions, or ammunition. Hard as the conditions were, Which the victor thus imposed upon the vanquished, the French mediator flattered himself that he should be able to induce the elector of Bavaria to accept them. In order to give time for an accommodation, Gustavus had agreed to a cessation of hostilities for a fortnight. But at the very time when this monarch was receiving from the French agents repeated assurances of the favorable progress of the negotiation, an intercepted letter from the elector to Pappenheim the imperial general in Westphalia, revealed the perfidy of that prince, as having no other object in view by the whole negotiation than to gain time for his measures of defence. Far from intending to fetter his military operations, by a truce with Sweden, the artful prince hastened his preparations, and employed the leisure which his enemy afforded him, in making the most active dispositions for resistance. The negotiation accordingly failed, and served only to increase the animosity of the Bavarians and the Swedes. Tilly's augmented force, with which he threatened to overrun Franconia, urgently required the king's presence in that circle. But it was necessary to expel previously the Spaniards from the Rhine, and to cut off their means of invading Germany from the Netherlands. With this view, Gustavus Adolphus had made an offer of neutrality to the elector of Treves, Philip von Zeltern, on condition that the fortress of Hermenstein should be delivered up to him, and a free passage granted to his troops through Coblenz, But unwillingly, as the elector had beheld the Spaniards within his territories, he was still less disposed to commit his estates to the suspicious protection of a heretic, and to make the Swedish conqueror master of his destinies. Too weak to maintain his independence between two such powerful competitors, he took refuge in the protection of France. With his usual prudence, Richelieu profited by the embarrassments of this prince to augment the power of France, and to gain for her an important ally on the German frontier. A numerous French army was dispatched to protect the territory of Treves, and a French garrison was received in the Arenbretstein. But the object which had moved the elector to this bold step was not completely gained, for the offended pride of Gustavus Adolphus was not appeased Till he had obtained a free passage for his troops through Treves, pending these negotiations with Treves and France, the king's generals had entirely cleared the territory of Mentz of the Spanish garrisons, and Gustavus himself completed the conquest of this district by the capture of Kreuznach. To protect these conquests, the chancellor Oxenstiern was left with a division of the army upon the Middle Rhine, while the main body under the king himself began its march against the enemy in Franconia. The possession of this circle had, in the meantime, been disputed with variable success, between Count Tilly and the Swedish general Horn, whom Gustavus had left there with 8,000 men, and the bishopric of Bamberg in particular, was at once the prize and the scene of their struggle. Called away to the Rhine by his other projects, the king had left to his general the chastisement of the bishop, whose perfidy had excited his indignation, And the activity of Horn justified the choice. In a short time he subdued the greater part of the bishopric, and the capital itself, abandoned by its imperial garrison, was carried by storm. The banished bishop urgently demanded assistance from the elector of Bavaria, who was at length persuaded to put an end to Tilly's inactivity. Fully empowered by his master's order to restore the bishop to his possessions, this general collected his troops, who were scattered over the upper palatinate, and with an army of twenty thousand men, advanced upon Bamberg. Firmly resolved to maintain his conquest even against this overwhelming force, Horn awaited the enemy within the walls of Bamberg, but was obliged to yield to the vanguard of Tilly what he thought to be able to dispute with his whole army. A panic which suddenly seized his troops, and which no presence of mind of their general could check, opened the gates to the enemy, and it was with difficulty that the troops baggage and artillery were saved the reconquest of bamberg was the fruit of this victory but tilly with all his activity was unable to overtake the swedish general who retired in good order behind the main the king's appearance in franconia and his junction with gustavus horn at kitzingen put a stop to tilly's conquests and compelled him to provide for his own safety by a rapid retreat the king made a general view of his troops at Aschaffenburg. After his junction with Gustavus Horn, Banner, and Duke William of Weimar, they amounted to nearly forty thousand men. His progress through Franconia was uninterrupted, for Tilly, far too weak to encounter an enemy so superior in numbers, had retreated by rapid marches toward the Danube. Bohemia and Bavaria were now equally near to the king, and uncertain whether his victorious course might be directed, Maximilian could form no immediate resolution, the choice of the king and the fate of both provinces now depended on the road that should be left open to count Tilly. It was dangerous during the approach of so formidable an enemy to leave Bavaria undefended in order to protect Austria. Still more dangerous, by receiving Tilly into Bavaria, to draw thither the enemy also, and to render it the seat of a destructive war. The cares of the sovereign finally overcame the scruples of the statesmen, and Tilly received orders at all hazards to cover the frontiers of Bavaria with his army. Nuremberg received with triumphant joy the protector of the Protestant religion and German freedom, and the enthusiasm of the citizens expressed itself on his arrival in loud transports of admiration and joy. Even Gustavus could not contain his astonishment to see himself in this city which was the very centre of Germany where he had never expected to be able to penetrate. The noble appearance of his person completed the impression produced by his glorious exploits, and the condescension with which he received the congratulations of this free city won all hearts. He now confirmed the alliance he had concluded with it on the shores of the Baltic, and excited the citizens to zealous activity and fraternal unity against the common enemy. After a short stay in Nuremberg, he followed his army to the Danube, and appeared unexpectedly before the frontier town of Donauwerth a numerous bavarian garrison defended the place and their commander rodolf maximilian duke of saxe-launenburg showed at first a resolute determination to defend it till the arrival of tilly but the vigour with which gustavus adolphus prosecuted the siege soon compelled him to take measures for a speedy and secure retreat which amidst a tremendous fire from the swedish artillery he successfully executed the conquest of de opened to the king the further side of the danube and now the small river lech alone separated him from bavaria the immediate danger of his dominions aroused all maximilian's activity and however little he had hitherto disturbed the enemy's progress to his frontier he now determined to dispute as resolutely the remainder of their course on the opposite bank of the lech near the small town of rennes tilly occupied a strongly fortified camp which, surrounded by three rivers, bade defiance to all attack. All the bridges over the Lech were destroyed, the whole course of the stream protected by strong garrisons as far as Augsburg, and that town itself, which had long betrayed its impatience to follow the example of Nuremberg and Frankfurt, secured by a Bavarian garrison and the disarming of its inhabitants. The elector himself, with all the troops he could collect, threw himself into Tilly's camp, as if all his hopes centred on this single point, and here the good fortune of the Swedes was to suffer shipwreck for ever. Gustavus Adolphus, after subduing the whole territory of Augsburg, on his own side of the river, and opening to his troops a rich supply of necessaries from that quarter, soon appeared on the bank opposite the Bavarian entrenchments. It was now the month of March, when the river, swollen by frequent rains and the melting of the snow from the mountains of the Tyrol, flowed full and rapid between its steep banks. Its boiling current threatened the rash assailants with certain destruction, while from the opposite side the enemy's cannon showed their murderous mouths. If, in despite of the fury both of fire and water, they should accomplish this almost impossible passage, a fresh and vigorous enemy awaited the exhausted troops in an impregnable camp, and when they needed repose and refreshment, they must prepare for battle. With exhausted powers they must ascend the hostile entrenchments, whose strength seemed to bid defiance to every assault. A defeat sustained upon this shore would be attended with inevitable destruction, since the same stream which impeded their advance would also cut off their retreat, if fortune should abandon them. The Swedish Council of War, which the King now assembled, strongly urged upon him all these considerations, in order to deter him from this dangerous undertaking the most intrepid were appalled and a troop of honorable warriors who had grown gray in the field did not hesitate to express their alarm but the king's resolution was fixed what said he to gustavus horn who spoke for the rest have we crossed the baltic and so many great rivers of germany and shall we now be checked by a brook like the leck gustavus had already at great personal risk reconnoitred the whole country and discovered that his own side of the river was higher than the other and consequently gave a considerable advantage to the fire of the Swedish artillery over that of the enemy. With great presence of mind, he determined to profit by the circumstance. At the point where the left bank of the Lech forms an angle with the right, he immediately caused three batteries to be erected, from which 72 field pieces maintained a crossfire upon the enemy. While this tremendous cannonade drove the Bavarians from the opposite bank, he caused to be erected a bridge over the river with all possible rapidity. A thick smoke, kept up by burning wood and wet straw, concealed for some time the progress of the work from the enemy, while the continued thunder of the cannon overpowered the noise of the axes. He kept alive by his own example the courage of his troops, and discharged more than sixty cannon with his own hand. The cannonade was returned by the Bavarians with evil vivacity for two hours, though with less effect, as the Swedish batteries swept the lower bank, while their heights served as a breastwork to their own troops. In vain, therefore, did the Bavarians attempt to destroy these works. The superior fire of the Swedes threw them into disorder, and the bridge was completed under their very eyes. On this dreadful day, Tilly did everything in his power to encourage his troops, and no danger could drive him from the bank. At length he found the death in which he sought. A cannonball shattered his leg, and Altringer, his brave companion in arms, was soon after dangerously wounded in the head. Deprived of the animating presence of their two generals, the Bavarians gave way at last, and Maximilian, in spite of his own judgment, was driven to adopt a pusillanimous resolve. Overcome by the persuasions of the dying Tilly, whose wonted firmness was overpowered by the near approach of death, he gave up his impregnable position for lost, and the discovery by the Swedes of a ford by which their cavalry were on the point of passing, accelerated his inglorious retreat the same night before a single soldier of the enemy had crossed the lech he broke up his camp without giving time for the king to harass him in his march retreated in good order to neuburg and ingolstadt with astonishment did gustavus adolphus who completed the passage of the river on the following day behold the hostile camp abandoned and the elector's flight surprised him still more when he saw the strength of the position he had quitted had i been the bavarian said he though a cannonball had carried away my beard and chin never would i have abandoned a position like this and laid open my territory to the enemies bavaria now lay exposed to the conqueror and for the first time the tide of war which had hitherto only beat against its frontier now flowed over its long spared and fertile fields before however the king proceeded to the conquest of these provinces he delivered the town of Augsburg from the yoke of Bavaria, exacted an oath of allegiance from the citizens, and to secure its observance left a garrison in the town. He then advanced by rapid marches against Ingolstadt in order by the capture of this important fortress which the elector covered with the greater part of his army to secure his conquests in Bavaria and obtain a firm footing on the Danube. End of part two.